Welcome to the Chalk Talk Gym podcast, where we explore insights into healthcare that help uncover new opportunities for growth and success. I'm your host, Jim Jordan. Our guest today is Michael Presley, who on the surface has been operating as an attorney for over 40 years, but he also has an MBA, a master's in public health, and he's focusing right now also on artificial intelligence. And this has led him to run a physician office practice and most recently working as chief executive officer of Tangent Health. So Michael, broad background, tell me a little bit about how you got here. Sure. Well, I've been a healthcare attorney for nearly 40 years, well, a little over 40 years. But in 2014, I started to change my focus into more administrative work with medical practices. And when we sold out our business, I was on a covenant not to compete for 18 months. So I figured that I wanted to re-educate myself and become relevant in this new paradigm called the 21st century. So I applied and got accepted to the program at Johns Hopkins University, the MBA program there, specifically for healthcare administration and global leadership which was dual core. And I graduated in 2020 with honors, a member of Beta Gamma Sigma. From there, I wanted to extend my knowledge even further. And at a time I had a medical algorithm that I was developing that I really wanted to get highlighted. So I applied to and got accepted to the program at Stanford GSB, the purpose of which was to also highlight my device because Stanford is known for incubators and things like that. So I went through that program and in the process of taking corporate finance and business development models, et cetera, for disruption, we were fortunate because we won the Stanford Award for Innovation with the device, which I'll talk about in a minute, but we won that in 2021. From there, I wanted to further my knowledge a little bit more and extend our rule-based algorithm to a machine learning algorithm. So I got my certification for AI at MIT. And from there, I then realized that to build my regression models, which was going to help me prognosticate the areas that I wanted to look at in depth, I had to go back and take public health, which I did at my alma mater, which was the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins, which for 25 years in a row, I'll give them a plug, is the number one public health school in the world. And so I went back and I'm now actively working with two great professors in my capstone which is Dr. Brian Caffo, and he's helping me with my regression models and in developing my neural network or the device that we can talk about a little bit later or whatever you want to talk about it. But healthcare for me was always my first passion, my first love. And I built my company around the notion that there are more poor people than rich. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting in the very beginning was when I went to Stanford, the word disruption has been thrown around forever. And people think, oh, disruption, electric cars, all these things. And that's not really what it is. Disruption, for the most part, according to Christensen at Harvard, he did a great paper in 2015 on it. And what he said was, you know, you have incumbents, industries that have players that have been in there for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. They dominate the field. 
And they eventually gravitate to looking at higher paying customers. So they're done with the low lying hanging fruit and they want to get to the notion where if I can sell a $3 million MRI, why would I want to sell packs of x-ray film for $50 where I can make one big hit and stuff like that. But that leaves a huge underlying marketplace where disruption can really happen. And disruption is when a new entrant or what we would call a startup actually penetrates that field where there are a host of incumbents and they devise a device or whatever the apparatus is to treat a very prolific situation for very cheap cost. And that's what we did. What we did with our device, Plain Sight, is in a word, it's a medical algorithm that we developed. It's a fixed algorithm. And we capture and analyze biosignals coming from an EKG, any EKG, six lead or 12 lead, which is the common marketplace variety. And what we do is we turn it actually into a three-dimensional model of your heart. And in it, we can show areas of what we call ischemic injury. And for your listeners, ischemia is basically a deprivation of oxygen and most common you'll find with myocardial infarction, obviously, but you'll also find it in everything from myocarditis, which is what a lot of people were experiencing with the vaccines and with the virus itself, COVID-19. And so what it does is it shows you a pictorial of the heart, your heart, and it shows areas of impact or what we call pathology. And that takes the form of color coding in red. So if you see a lot of red, you're next to dead. Green, it's like a stoplight, you can go. But it also what it does, our technology tracks what is called the micro alternans or the electrical current that starts from the SA node, which is your pacemaker node. And it goes all the way through the heart and tracks nine areas. And then it gives you a score. And that score is basically telling you how healthy your heart is. And there's a legend there, which is zero to 15, you're in the normal range. 16 to 19, you're in the, you know, not what they call non-specific. not quite sure what's going on there, but from 20 and above, that's in the pathologic range where obviously something is going on that is requiring attention. And that can be in the form of active intervention through surgical means, or it could be through the administration of prophylactic drugs like statins and high blood pressure medication. But what we're doing, and when we were at Stanford and we won the Innovations Award in, in Stanford, we were broadcast live around the world and a company out of Hong Kong invested a lot of money in us at that time. And so we were able to put further development wrapped around it. And we spread our wings and also did a major push into Central and South America and we're using some public health concepts there that I learned about when I was at Bloomberg that I thought was actually very relevant to that area to promote, number one, the use of not only our device, but getting examined and getting the proper documentation prepared so that when they make their flight and their journey up to the U.S., at least we know what the public health burden is or not that may be following them up the trail. So, so can I pause for our audience just to maybe make sure they have a complete understanding here. So I got involved in a company called Premier Heart way, way back when. I'll, I'll send you the link. And it was attempting to do something like this, but it was well before we had the technologies that we have today. So I'm going back like 12 years ago. Okay. But the premise was, so I'm aging myself a bit, but I think the premise might be applicable here. I believe the premise was that 
First of all, EKGs and ECGs, by their very nature, have a margin of error. Huge. False positives and false negatives. And so I think that's one of the things you're going after. And then the second piece is that they're done in mostly an emergency room situation, which is very costly and very expensive. And that some aspects or some ischemia coloration that you're talking about really talks about how well the heart is being perfused. So you can actually catch that there's a problem before it becomes acute. Am I correct in all that? No, you're you're absolutely right. In public health, parlance, there is a difference between screening and diagnostic tools. We're really a screening tool. And where we excel is basically in the field of looking at asymptomatic people or what we call preclinical or subclinical disease. Heart disease is the number one killer in the world, yet people who have their first heart attack and die from it didn't even know that they had heart disease. And that's because it's a silent killer. So you can have variations in the fluctuations of your electrical current which shows some type of a pathologic response to an altered state or disease, not even know it. And the good thing about this is you are 100% correct. We increase the sensitivity and specificity of the underlying EKG. If you look at some of the reports by NIH, they did a study on the sensitivity and specificity of the EKG, and the sensitivity was around 28%. And the specificity only got to about 50. We, by this development, we had our validation studies done at Yale. We actually picked up 78% on sensitivity using the same biosignal and almost 90% on specificity. So we're really a really good rule out kind of test. And we can actually make clear distinctions of what a person is going through. For example, when they present to an ER complaining of chest pain with a family history of heart disease, one of our validation studies actually looked at 137 patients coming through the ER at Yale New Haven Hospital. And in order for those patients to get into the chest pain clinic, you had to be cleared on your EKG, meaning no signs of a heart attack. And the second thing is that there had to be no evidence of troponin in your blood. And troponin is an enzyme that is typically released in the heart when there is evidence of damage from a heart attack. So zero, zero on both, and you go over to the chest pain clinic. Plain Sight, which is the name of our medical algorithm, we reviewed all 137 EKGs and we found 13 instances where there was something actively going on. And sure enough, when they were eventually stressed and tested, as opposed to a resting EKG over at ED side or you know the emergency room department, when they were stressed, those 13 cases that we found all needed stents. So we were able to identify 13 cases of ischemia that needed active intervention, whereas those were cleared in the ER. Yeah, and and you get 100 cardiologists looking at the EKG and they said, yeah, nothing to worry about, but indeed there was 13 instances where we picked it up and of course they didn't, not having the technology present that we have. And we're fine. I wanted to ask a lawyer question too, because knowing your strong background in this, I sense that you did this purposely, but just for our audience so people can understand how to be crafty and bring things to market. You specifically use the word screening versus diagnostic, and I believe the difference in those is about $50 million in clinical trials. So if you start out with gathering that information for screening, because you're not doing anything 
predictive. You're saying you should go take the next test. Right. It's a good way to gather data over time. And it's a good way for when you're disrupting, as you said, for a market to get comfortable with something. Was that, I'm interpreting your strategy, but I was just wondering if that's- You're spot on. Okay. You're spot on. That's exactly the nature of what it can do, why we defined it that way, why we structured the output that way. And it alerts people more so than giving them a definitive diagnosis. But we can actually dial that up and give them a definitive diagnosis. But to reach more people, we dialed it so that we could just detect the beginnings or how far along you are in the stage of progression of disease with heart disease. So yeah, you are 100% spot on. So what was your strategy for going overseas first versus a US-based strategy? Well, we, number one, we received our CE mark first. Number two, our investors were in Southeast Asia. So a lot of what we wanted to do was to silo the test because the test is delivered through a SaaS model, software mm -hmm. as a service, right? And we use the Microsoft Azure cloud system because it's all HIPAA compliant and healthcare protected according to the jurisdiction that you're in. And we had given the investor, which sits on the Hong Kong exchange, EC Healthcare, we gave them a distributorship and we wanted to silo those sales there and silo it into the tax jurisdiction of Singapore. And then of course, we have a company here for eventual sales here. And we have another company sitting in Dublin, another tax haven for tests that are being delivered to Central and South America and Northern and Sub-Saharan Africa, where we are now. So startups by their very nature need an exit normally. Who do you think is going to be the type of company that would be interested in buying your firm? There's two ways to go. The first way is to look at an enhancement tool for a medical device company that already sells EKGs. But I think more prolifically, because of the dynamics of use, it's actually going to be an insurance company sale. And the reason for that is it's all about defining risk. You see, the whole notion of medical school is we save lives one at a time, right? Well, the motto for the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and they ask you this because they say, if you don't know what the motto is for Bloomberg, you're not going to get your diploma. But it too says we save lives millions at a time, millions at a time, not just one at a time, millions at a time. So in this situation, through our predictive models, which I'm now overlaying artificial intelligence over the output of it, and without getting to a lot of details of how we do that, leaving it in its little black box for a minute, what we can do is we can start to look at population trends. So that, for example, we can quantify a whole country because like in Guatemala or Honduras, population is pretty much finite and they all use the same providers. So we can gather that information. And the nice part about it is we can start to predict trends correlated against other factors that they may deal with, like herbicides or pesticides and things like that, and really see what is the driving principle behind their heart disease or their health status in general. It's just not just the heart disease issue. It's also a host of other factors that you derive when you're looking at the data. And the nice part about it is we have a campaign out there right now about taking yourself out of the shadows, getting away from the stigma of being undocumented, and very importantly, because permanent visas require that you have medical exams when you go in and fill out the form, we're going to give you a card certifying your heart health and also whatever disease factors you have, and we can put it on your phone 
since that's maybe their only possession that they take with them when they cross the border. At least it gives NIH and those people there an idea of where people are traveling, also what the conditions are so that Plainsight can then quantify for the NIH, for example, how much statins are going to be needed in an area, how much high blood pressure medication is going to be needed in an area. What happens if there's an outbreak? Where are they traveling to so that we can alert public health authorities to be prepared? And it's all about preparedness. And by doing that, it removes the stigma. And the reactions, I have to say, have been quite good. And people are now encouraged to go get this test. And we're there also to warehouse their data. And if they wanted to de-identify it, we do. And if they want to keep it siloed with a de-identification number, this way they can track it and pull it down when they go to a healthcare service, either in Central or South America or in the United States. So you had mentioned an insurance company would be interested in it just for our audience. So when I was at a Fortune 5 company in healthcare, we started out as a service organization on congestive heart failure, just calling in and getting their weight and certain measurements to keep them what I would call statistical process control. And the company was a large company and finally databased everything and realized, wow, our patients are actually really tight standard deviation. So at that time, you could go anywhere from 58,000 a year to a quarter of a million for a congestive heart failure patient. The average was 68 and the company's performance was in the mid 60s. So what they did is they converted from a service organization to a disease management organization. They went to the health plans and said, I will take all your congestive heart failure patients for this price. It saved the health plan a certain number. And they also made money too. Is that how you envision something like this going on? It's like you're wearing your guru hat today because you're very spot on. It'd be great if you came into our company because you know a lot about what our vision is over a long period of time. And that is to isolate, much like we do here in the United States, you know, where they do the risk transfer payments with Medicare Advantage. They look at two competing companies and over the year they say who has the greater risk. And then the company with the greater risk gets the portion of the premiums that the company that had less risk was taking for their own. So it's all about risk transfer. It's about quantification of risk and better defining, like for reinsurance. In the United States, for example, there is no medical underwriting when you're buying health insurance, but the insurance companies have to buy reinsurance. And it's no coincidence that they are warehoused in Germany and places outside the United States because there they can do medical underwriting. But they are very interested in looking at the quantification of risk because like things with COVID and things like that, they don't know how to adjust. So they just laid on 8% year over year in causing rising healthcare costs. This at least gives you a way to look at that risk from prognostication or what we would call time to event series. So what is your time as a person to first heart attack, to first stroke, And how does that impact your mortality overall, given the dynamics of your environment and how you interact with that environment? These are all essential tools that the insurance company is looking for. And in fact, they're promoting this in that country. An insurance company there is heavily promoting the use of it in its insured organizations because a lot of healthcare there is simply uncompensated care. And so- I want to go back to, if I recall looking at your background- Did you do a stint at running a physician practice? Yes, I did. Okay. So just for the audience, a lot of years of being a healthcare attorney, you did the physician office, then you went and got all the other education. So do you see 
for a physician, a large physician practice or a accountable care organization that maybe physician practices are involved in that this tool could also be used? Well, absolutely. Okay. It's important because if you start recognizing asymptomatic care before an acute event occurs, that's going to save on these capitated plans because you're not going to take the big hit. And at that point, they're not going to invoke their reinsurance and their stop loss payments. And they can start getting a handle on what that true disease burden is. And so obviously, if you catch it early, common sense would tell you that it's going to have a greater impact longitudinally over a long period of time, saving companies, saving the U.S. government hundreds of millions of dollars, because let's face it, heart health is the number one killer second only to cancer and then, you know, of course, COVID-19 when it was about, but that's really the hierarchy of where it is. So it does save in the long run. Well, I think too that I was always a big fan of parotid ultrasound because it's a very non-invasive test. And generally, I think you're showing cardiovascular, you're showing the plumbing health, right? Whether it's the brain, peripheral, end-stage renal disease. So I think that the other aspect of your test here is you're going to find that it could lead you to, and this is probably why you're doing your algorithms, a precision medicine model on the broader cardiovascular system over time. That's correct. In fact, we're partnering with a doctor in South America who we met at Yale and who does continuing medical education throughout the other region. And he does bedside ultrasounds. And especially for that reason. So now you combine both of our technology, what happens in biostatistics, you take the sensitivity of both and you ratchet them together. So now you increase sensitivity of both machines. So now we're traveling much more with those two tests combined in the 90 to 95 percent of sensitivity. And, you know, most people would say, well, now you're finding too many disease. Well, not really. What we're finding is a lot of disease in its beginning stage. Which is beautiful. Which is beautiful. So yeah. if you start giving them statins, the statin is like less than a penny a pill. So what challenges is your organization facing as you launch this? Because I also know you have a malpractice background too. And right. you know, one of the things is a physician going outside of what is accepted as gold standard today, right? So you could imagine that using this over an EKG, if someone got into trouble, that, that would be a challenge. So as you think about bringing this product into the US and what are you anticipating as the challenges? Well, just like any other type of medical device that comes in, there's going to be, you know, when you put products in the stream of commerce, you're going to have to provide for some type of malpractice insurance or misreading and what have you. But the fun part about this is, is that when we get into AI, we're going to be doing what we call at MIT, a supermind community. So for example, when you're training your algorithm, you have a training set of data. And that could be five, that could be 10, that could be 20,000 individuals that you look at or cases. So what we do is as we're training the algorithm to identify the more significant cases, I'm having a supermind community, which is made up of pods of six cardiologists from different backgrounds, but who are all well peer reviewed. They do a lot of publications. They have a commonality of being at a university setting for their delivery of their healthcare. So they're very keenly aware of the nuances to different types of healthcare. But those are the ones that are giving us the adjustments to the algorithm because they say, okay, while we agree with the initial prognostication of the AI powered performance, we'd like to adjust it because these are certain factors that I think they need to look at. So we'll go back in 
and this is called supervised learning, right? We don't do mm-hmm. unsupervised in healthcare. The FDA would don't even think about that. They always think about supervised learning. So you go back in and you tweak what we call the learning rate or what we call ADA, ETA. And we then adjust for those and adjust for those so that the margin of error decreases over time. And eventually that will become the gold standard. But yeah, you're right. In the beginning, it's not the gold standard, but it helps enhance the gold standard that exists, which in this case is the EKG. Of course, that's the marketing challenge. As I was asking that question, the 180 to that is in the sample you gave earlier, the, would you say 12 cases out of 100 or something? That if those went acute, Physicians could be sued for that too for malpractice, right? Exactly. So, I guess, yeah. so you're obviously not a AI specialist. You're going to school, you're educating yourself. What sort of staff are you doing or how are you augmenting your team? It's really funny you asked that. I was just asked that last week. And part of the reason why I go to school so much is I actually, because classes in graduate school are like eight weeks mm-hmm. and you get assigned to cohorts within the group. So you may have a hundred people in your class, but you get assigned to a cohort of five or six people. And all of the people that are working with us, and there's 10 of us now, they all came from the schools I came from. So two of my people graduated with me with my MBA over at Hopkins. Four of them are, are came from Stanford when they were with me at that program. And two now just joined us from the Bloomberg School. So those are the people that I know that I've worked with. One guy I've worked with like forever, 35 years, I know. He's our CIT, but chief information technical officer. So, you know, those are the people that we're hiring and we already know how we work together and it's working out very comfortably. So what do you see as the biggest opportunity for growth in the healthcare in general over the next decade as you look out? Here's the thing, because migration patterns are changing, whether you believe in climate change or not, people are moving, all right? Some say they're moving because of famine. Some say they're moving because of political unrest. Whatever the occasion is, they are moving, and they're moving in big numbers. So that's going to shift the population health dynamics of every place that you go. So Central America, South America will become less populated. North America will become more populated, and it is becoming more populated. But I think that is the big challenge, and that is to integrate the unknown into a society that operates at a high level of concern for malpractice and who operates at a high level trying to get there. If you look at the United States, we're in a health gap. We spend more than any other country in the world, but we're right in the middle like for mortality. And you would suspect that if we spend the most 10 times more than the closest country, that we would have much better health statistics. And in fact, we don't. Our uh, mortality rate is on average between 76 and 76 and a half years, depending upon whether you're male or female. But there are some countries like even Costa Rica, average age of death is over 84, and Japan is right up there with them. You've got so many people, centenarians in their hundreds in those populations, And it's not uncommon to see a heavy Japanese population in Costa Rica. So that may be skewing the data somewhat. But I think that's really the biggest thing, bridging that gap, spending less, getting better results. And I think it starts at the screening stage. And that's really where we're focused. And we're doing algorithms not only for the EKG, we're starting the new technology on the brain model with the AEG and seeing if we can pick up plaque molecules when they're forming at 
microscopic levels because let's face it, we have great drugs for Alzheimer's, but by the time the people get to use those drugs, they're gone. They're so far past the point of no return that these drugs, which would be great in the initial stages of disease, really have very little impact when you go past that certain break point where there's no looking back. It's well, it was a drug many years ago, going to forget its name, but it stopped the progression and it wasn't terribly popular. And the reason was exactly as you were saying is that families were saying, you know, my parents been gone. They're not there anymore. Why do I want to sustain that state? Right? Exactly, it's yeah. just not a, a healthy state. But I also think you're coming at it from, I haven't had too many guests come at it from a public health perspective. And I think in an insurance perspective, I think for me, one of the things that was interesting as I started getting into the details as if you want to go into a new region, I think we would all sort of intuitively understand that maybe New Orleans and LA have two different health profiles, right? Just by the nature of the food and everything. But you go in blind as an insurance company. So how can you bid when you don't actually know what your service is going to cost? And I think that you're probably the first person to bring this subject up in this way. That's a very difficult way to make a business. And so I'll be the first to complain that by regulation, insurance companies can have 20 cents on the dollar. They're around 15 cents right now. And I'll hold up an American Express and a Visa and say, why is it for half a percentage point that one chooses one over the other? Why are we spending so much on insurance? But I think you bring up the point that you're going into these regions and you have no idea what you're going to find. Am I going to find heart disease that's averaging $250,000 a year or heart disease that's averaging $50,000 a year? Huge difference over time. Huge. Well, for our audience, I actually screwed up and dialed in late to this. So I'm cognizant. You said you're traveling for the next month, three months? Yeah, I am because we're starting the program in uh, Hospital de la Paz down in Guatemala. And then we're heading over to Honduras to do three more facilities there. We're going to head into Argentina. Then we're heading over to Israel who took a keen interest in this in processing patients at the emergency room level. So we're going to Israel. Then I'll around there. I'm going to head back to Malaysia, where they're going to be onboarding this in several 92 clinics that are part of the EC healthcare chain. So for our audience, that's the life of a CEO of a startup. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, it's not all glamour and glitz. I'm sick of my backpack and dragging that thing around. Wow. <laughs> oh, good luck for you. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? Just be aware that I think that public health is the health of this nation. And what we're trying to do basically is get a handle on how disease impacts various sectors throughout our country. And if you're given a survey to complete, and it's from a reputable institution like Carnegie Mellon or Johns Hopkins, fill it out because it helps us. And that's another thing too. Data sharing is so important. And all of our data banks, we're going to throw it up on uh, blockchain. And for a token, people can get on. And we designed a wireframe where they can pick out what they want to do for their study design. And if they need a population of African-Americans ages 34 to 55, then they can query it and pull down the population that we get. Our only quid pro quo is that whatever you do, the report has to come back archived so that we can peer review it. And then people can actually look at the data that you drew in order to conduct your study. So it takes away a lot of disinformation or misinformation on outcomes data in particular. So I think that's the takeaways here is that it's heading in the right direction, especially since what we learned from COVID-19, we can avoid those going forward. Excellent. I think COVID-19 taught us that public health, which is 
historically thought of as a national defense and in healthcare is sort of a economic defense need to talk. And I think that absolutely. Yeah. It's a wonderful mission that you're doing. Thank you very much. Appreciate you being a guest. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thanks for tuning into the Chalk Talk Gym podcast. For resources, show notes, and ways to get in touch, visit us at chalktalkgym.com.